The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Happy Easter. He's risen. If you're going to devote your life to something, you need that thing to have two attributes. Number one, you need it to be true. You need what you devote your life to to be actual fact, an accurate description of reality. I don't know about you, but I don't want to devote my life to a fairy tale. I need my life to be founded on things that are real. But to devote your life to something, you not only need it to be true, you need it to be beautiful. It's got to be able to satisfy your heart to bring you joy. It's got to provide hope for the future. It's got to thrill you. If what you devote your life to isn't beautiful to you, it'll be a burden. It'll end up a harsh duty. It won't hold you in hard times. To devote your life to something, you need it to be both true and beautiful. We uh, especially feel that in times like these, don't we? Times of trial. We, what we live for needs to be true enough to hold us like an anchor in the storm amidst all the fear and doubt and insecurity. But what we live for also needs to be beautiful enough to provide meaning, hope, joy, peace, love, no matter what comes. To devote your life to something, it's got to be both true and beautiful. And I want to ask you, do you have that this morning? Um, we'd have to admit that Christianity is not always seen in this light. It's not always considered true or beautiful. Sometimes people suspect Christians, the things they believe is the stuff of fairy tales in the ancient traditions. Things like miracles can be hard to believe. No truth, some might say. Others, you look at Christianity and you feel like the church is full of self-righteous hypocrites and harsh rules. No beauty, others might say. But what if, what if you weren't quite looking yet in the right place when it comes to Christianity? What if you found that all the while you've been considering Christianity kind of like the backside of a tapestry? All you saw was the mess of string and knots, but you hadn't yet considered the lavish work of art presented on the other side. To consider Christianity, you've got to look at the resurrection of Jesus. You've got to look at the resurrection. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. After all, Jesus claimed over and over again that he would both die and rise again. And this adds incredible intensity to who he is. For instance, as Tim Keller says... If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Jesus' claim to the resurrection means he can't be just a good teacher or a good example. If he didn't rise, he's a, he's a fraud. Throw it out. It's not true. But if he did rise from the dead, 
then he's far more than a good teacher. He's Lord. And he's the one to whom your life should be devoted. So the resurrection, obviously, is a question of history. That means then to consider it, we're going to have to consider the testimony of the witnesses. That's the only way to give it the consideration it deserves. So this morning, we're going to consider the witness of the Apostle John. And I think in this passage, John chapter 20, John shows us both how the resurrection is true, but he also shows us how the resurrection is beautiful. So we're going to see four things this morning. Two reasons the resurrection is true, and two reasons it is beautiful. We'll jump right into the story. We're in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The first thing to notice, I think, is that the disciples who loved Jesus were very slow to believe in his resurrection. It's somewhat ironic, Jesus claimed over and over again that he would die and rise And here on the third day, they act as if he never said it at all. First, we see the honest response of Mary. She goes early Sunday morning, encounters the open and empty tomb. And what does she think? What does the text show you? Does does she raise her hands and say, he's risen, just as he said? Does she pull out her pocket hymnal and sing, up from the grave he arose? No. No. She thinks they've stolen the body. She starts as a skeptic. The tomb is empty. And someone stealing the body is the only rational solution. Right? But Mary is not the only one of Jesus' followers who did not see the resurrection coming. Jesus' two most prominent disciples, Peter and John, they were anything but quick to believe in the resurrection. You know, with all the times Jesus told them this would happen, it should have been like a countdown to New Year's. Peter and John should have been camping out by the tomb. Three, two, one. Instead, they're hiding in fear. They're not even there with Mary that morning. She has to go dig them out of where they're hiding to get them to come see. So the first thing we see is what? We see the honest account of how slow the disciples were to believe in the resurrection. And friends, let me just tell you, details like these are important. They express honest history, not made-up myth. Uh, Theologian and historian N.T. Wright is somewhat of an expert on the resurrection. This is what he writes. He says... The stories exhibit exactly that surface tension which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction and therefore anxious to make everything look right, 
But with the hurried, puzzled accounts of those who have seen with their own eyes something which took them horribly by surprise and with which they have not yet fully come to terms. So we see already one reason to believe in the truth of the resurrection. It's the brutally honest account of the response of Jesus' followers. Another reason to believe in the truth of the resurrection is that it's really the only thing that makes sense of all the details. The resurrection is the only thing that makes sense of all the details. Now, i got to tell you, there's massive books on this subject. We're only going to scratch the surface here. But let's just look at some of the details of this text. Look at verse 5. As Peter and John arrived, verse 5 says, Stooping to look in, probably John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So John runs, arrives, peeks in, and what does he see? Only burial cloths. We remember that Jesus' body would have been wrapped in something like 75 to 80 pounds of spices and cloths. And so it's very strange to look in and see those wrappings there, but no body. And Peter, he's taken aback. He walks into the tomb. We remember it's a large tomb of a rich man carved out of the rock. And so the text says Peter saw the cloths. And the word there behind the English word saw, the Greek word there is very interesting. It's theoreo. That sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? He theorized. What it means is what he saw made him think. He starts piecing things together. Wait, if the body was stolen, the claws wouldn't be here. These claws and the spices had some value. Thieves wouldn't leave these. That's, that's why they would come. Moreover, unwrapping the body, that would take a lot of time. Thieves wouldn't Stop here to do that. They wouldn't wait like that. Moreover, the, the face cloth is folded. Why would a thief do that? And you ask more questions. Why is the body gone and the cloth still here? Who would do this? It makes no sense for thieves. Well, it doesn't make any sense for Jewish or Roman authorities either. The entire point of the crucifixion was to squash the idea of Jesus as king. They want the body in a tomb or on display. They didn't take it. If thieves didn't take it, and the Roman and Jewish authorities didn't take it, we know good and well we didn't take it. We're terrified and sucking our thumbs, hiding away. Why is there no body? But yet there are folded grave cloths. And I love what John writes in verses 8 to 10. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You see what it was like for John. He runs there. He looks. Peter goes in. He ponders. John looks again. The only way to make sense of all the details is that he's alive. But an empty tomb ultimately won't be enough on its own. There's only one thing that is ultimately going to convince and transform 
Jesus' disciples. What is it? They're going to have to see him. They're going to need to touch him, listen to him, eat with him, spend time with him. And if you read the rest of this gospel, if you read Luke, if you read Acts, you'll see they will. They will. First Corinthians, Paul will write there, he knows of 500 people who encountered the resurrected Jesus. But this morning, we're just going to look at the first encounter of one of Jesus' followers meeting the resurrected Christ. And it happens to Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 11. As Peter and John run back home, Mary stands weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So we're about to hear this very first encounter of the resurrected Jesus with one of his, one of his followers. And I just want you to see how remarkable this is for the ancient world. Do you know why this is so radical and strange? If you're trying to start a movement in the ancient world and you want to draw this up just right, Mary Magdalene is the last person in the world that you would ever choose. The reason is because, number one, Mary Magdalene is a woman. That's a bad strategy for the ancient world to build a case for your greatest event. Um, First of all, a woman's testimony wasn't accepted in court. Is that what you want as your first witness in that context? Moreover, Christians felt this pressure later. There's a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus, and he was a public skeptic towards Christianity. He actually wrote a book attacking Christianity, calling it lies. And you know what one of his main lines of attack was? One of his main attacks towards Christianity It would be offensive to us, but it was influential in his day. Here's what he wrote. Celsus wrote, How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? But don't you see? This means there was pressure for the disciples to deny this detail of the account. There was pressure for the disciples to ignore the detail that the first witness to their most important event was a Christian. And yet they don't deny it at all. They trumpet it. There's a second reason you wouldn't want Mary Magdalene to be the main witness to your most important event. She wasn't just a woman, she was a troubled woman. The Gospel of Luke tells her that Jesus tells us that Jesus had healed her of seven demons. So I don't know everything that that means, but I'm going to go ahead and, and imagine that she has a past, and there's some instability there. There's some emotional instability, some difficulty. You know, this is probably why she was first to the tomb. She loves Jesus so much. He alone had healed her and set her free. But if the first witness to the most important event of Christianity is not just a woman, but a woman who had in her life been unstable, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would the apostles show Mary to be the first witness to their most important event ever if it wasn't true? And here's the answer. They wouldn't have. It is true. Historian N.T. Wright, again, this is what Wright says. 
The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over to the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. So what I'm saying to you is what John is saying in the text. The best answer for explaining the facts is the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's true. There's a Christian thinker recently passed away uh, named Charles Colson. He worked a political leader with the Nixon administration, and he actually, he actually went to jail for his part in the Watergate scandal. Later, he became a Christian. This is what Colson wrote. Charles Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Each one was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. We've only scratched the surface this morning, but the more and more you look, the more and more you see really good evidence that the story of Jesus rising from the dead is a true story. It is the true story. But it's not only true, it's also beautiful. So here, I want to look at the beauty of Jesus' re resurrection, specifically as we consider Jesus' interaction with Mary. Jesus' interaction with Mary. Look now at verses 11 to 13. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, looked to, as she, wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So we just imagine Mary there, alone, weeping. Who can blame her? The movement she gave her life to had seemingly crashed and burned. Her leader and her friend, her friend who gave her healing and hope was publicly slaughtered. She goes to visit the tomb and she thinks the body is stolen. That's a rough weekend. And she seems to have a one-track mind, doesn't she? The body is stolen. The body is stolen. The text tells us she sees angels and she either doesn't seem to notice or doesn't seem to care. They ask her, why are you weeping? Now, by the way, when God or angels ask someone a question in the Bible, they're not usually looking for information they don't have. They ask that question for the, for the benefit of the person receiving the question. When, when, they're, when someone's asked a question like that, they're trying to get you to do some self-examination. They're trying to help you have a look at your own thoughts, your own assumptions, your own feeling, your life. 
They seem to be saying, hey, Mary, do you remember anything Jesus might have said about this? But still, one thing's on her mind. She says, they've taken my Lord. Do you realize, even in the face of an empty tomb and two angels, she still thinks he's dead and the body's been stolen. Verses 14 to 16. Here we see something beautiful. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here we see this precious moment where Mary meets Jesus. She doesn't know him at first. Again, resurrection just wasn't on her mind as something possible. So he asked her a question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, this is for her benefit. Don't you remember what I said? Don't you remember what I did? But did you see what it was that changed everything? She didn't know Jesus until he knew her. He says her name, Mary. She must have just gasped. She must have. It's him. He's alive. My teacher, she says. That was the same name she'd always used for him. We've seen this woman with a checkered past is not going to be the strongest resume for most religious groups when it comes to the first witness for the most important event. No one would want her. No one would choose her except Jesus. Do you see something beautiful here? I want to call this the beauty of personal, life-changing grace. The beauty of personal, life-changing grace. Grace is God's lavish love for the totally undeserving. It's God's love poured out on people who have earned the opposite. And it's personal. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said her name. He said her name. And we're reminded the resurrection shows us that God's grace comes for real people who are really unimpressive and have real issues and real problems. People like Mary. People like me. Probably people like you as well. Jesus came to love the losers. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm reminded back uh, what the text says in verses 8 and 9. John 20, verse 8, the other disciple had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. And then verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus, what's that next word? Must rise 
from the dead. Must. He has to. And this reminds us of what we saw on Good Friday and what we saw on Palm Sunday. Jesus had to die. And just as he had to die, he had to rise. This is God's plan to reconcile rebellious, troubled sinners like us to himself. Jesus came to live the life Mary couldn't live, the life I couldn't live. We've sinned, every one of us. We've rebelled against God. We've been horribly selfish. We've done evil deeds. We haven't kept our own standards for goodness. We certainly haven't kept his. We have devoted ourselves to things that are untrue and not beautiful. Are you willing to see that in yourself? Jesus came to live the life we couldn't live. He was perfectly righteous. He always loved his Father. He always loved others. He always obeyed God's righteous standard. He never sinned. He was totally devoted. And in that way, he came to provide for us, to represent us. He lived a perfect life for his people. So that he might give that standing to them, those who are totally undeserving. So that we could be made right with God in his perfection, not our own. Jesus came to die on a cross. He took the punishment his people deserved there. Justice was done on him for Mary's sins and my sins. And every sin of every one of his people for all time. So that his people could be forgiven. Made clean. Jesus had to die. And Jesus had to rise. We saw on Friday, no one could take his life from him. He gave it up to save his people. And in the same way, no one could keep him in that grave. <laughs> He's exploding out. He's unstoppable. And his resurrection proves and vindicates the power of his death. Which means, do you see the beauty here? The resurrection of Jesus is God's stamp of approval on what Jesus has done for you. For you. If you repent of your sin and put your faith in him, you now have a righteousness, a perfection, a standing that is alien to yourself. It is given as a free gift to you. God looks upon you and says, innocent, righteous, you're forgiven. And the resurrection vindicates that. It vindicates this personal, life-changing Grace for you and for me, for all who trust Christ. I want to ask you this morning, has Jesus said your name? Do you know what I mean by that? Have you had a time in your life where beforehand you, you, 
you didn't care, you didn't get it. But then something started, started churning, bothering you, changing you. And then one moment, some people can nail it down. They know exactly when it happened. Others, maybe it was a span of several months, but there was a start and there was a change. And in there somewhere, you heard him go, hey, he says your name. And you couldn't help but respond. Yes, my Lord, my Savior, my teacher. So we see such beauty here. Transforming personal grace. Look at verse 17. There Jesus says to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus seems to be saying to Mary, there'll be a time for us to linger together. Not yet. I have somewhere to be. But what I want to focus on is what he says after that. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Through his death and resurrection, Jesus' eternal Father now belongs to who? To Mary. Just as he's my father, he's yours. And this is true for Mary, and it's true for the rest of the disciples. He calls them brothers, and it's true for all God's people who trust Christ. He's your father, just as he's Christ's father. The resurrection is so beautiful because it's the ultimate source of personal, life-changing grace. If you've tasted this, you know it in your core. It is both true and it's also what? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's one more reason the resurrection is beautiful. The resurrection is beautiful for its ultimate hope. I want to remind you of verse 17. There Jesus said to Mary, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And the Gospels tell us, Acts tells us, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means ultimately he reigns now as king. He reigns right now as king. And it, it shows us that the resurrection was part one of God's project of renewal. His resurrection not only stamps us, changes us with that renewal in salvation... It's the guarantee that Jesus will one day renew all of creation. He's coming back. He's coming back. I don't just believe the resurrection of Jesus is true and beautiful. I do believe that. But I believe the resurrection of Jesus is the only reason to believe that there is anything like truth or beauty. Without the resurrection, why would we believe that love, justice, grace, 
beauty, redemption are real or can win in the end. That would be a false hope in a world like this one. Unless Jesus rose. Unless Jesus rose. Then even the darkest moment can be turned to shine light. Then even the worst stories can be redeemed in salvation and victory. Jesus rose, good wins, and that will show itself when Jesus returns and renews all things. I think for this Easter especially, we need news like this. So many of us, we're wearing fear, anger, anxiety, concern regarding economies, freedoms, governments, sicknesses, big picture problems, individual sufferings. Isn't it true? You need something, some foundation that's so strong, some anchor that's so secure. You need something that is true and beautiful. Let your heart cling to what is most true and most beautiful. Jesus rose. Jesus reigns. Jesus will return. And he will renew all things. Friends, we're not just waiting for some ghostly afterlife where we wear a heavenly bathrobe Try to figure out a new instrument. We're waiting for real bodies on a real earth with our real resurrected king. This here isn't living. It's the next life that's living. And the resurrection is the down payment on the reality that that will occur. The resurrection is true and beautiful, and then it gives ultimate hope. Ultimate hope. Christians throughout the ages, through horrid times of trial, have, have planted their foundation right here. Jesus rose from the dead, and so will I. You know, John wrote another letter it's that mysterious apocalyptic book of Revelation. A lot of it's hard to understand. But the main point is not vague. It's that Jesus reigns. And then he'll return. And he'll renew all things. And I want to share with you what John wrote there in Revelation 21, 3 to 5. Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You know what you see here? 
ultimate truth is ultimately beautiful. And the most beautiful is the most true. The resurrection is beautiful in the personal grace, life-changing grace to the undeserving and the ultimate hope that, is, that it provides. So I'll ask you on this Easter Sunday, this very strange Easter Sunday, what are you devoting your life to? What's the foundation of your hope? Is it true? Is it beautiful? You will never find anything more true and more beautiful than the person of Jesus and the reality of his resurrection. At the end of this chapter, John chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote this. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we close, I want to briefly chat with two different groups of people. Maybe you're listening in this morning and we're so glad you are. And uh, as you started, you're not sure where you fit in with Jesus. You're not sure what you think about Jesus. Will you look at the reality of his resurrection? And will you hear why John is sharing this with you and why we're sharing this with you? These things were written so that you'd believe and have life in his name. The true king and all the beautiful things he's accomplished can be yours right now as a free gift through faith. Repent of all the old things you've devoted yourself to. Repent and turn. Turn and trust in him. You'll have his life. Second, maybe you're already a Christian today. And uh, you've been distracted this week with all this news, all this trouble, how to interpret it, what to do with it. Remember your core foundation. Jesus is alive. That is the ultimate truth of reality. He's alive and he reigns and he will return. Which means you can live in the light of that truth today. That's the beauty you need. That's the foundation, the bedrock of truth that you need. So, we've seen the reality of how these events were portrayed. The resurrection is true in the way the disciples, the way we saw them approach it. The, revela- the, the resurrection is true. It's the only thing that makes sense of all the details of the event. But it's not just true, it's beautiful. The resurrection is the source of God's personal, life-transforming grace to the totally undeserving, just like you and me. And the resurrection ultimately is the promise of hope that, though G- that in that Jesus rose, he reigns, he'll return, and he will renew. If you've trusted him, rejoice in that. Because that's the truth. And the truth is beautiful. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a great Savior that we have and that we can celebrate today with all your people all over the world that Jesus is alive. He's alive. That sets him apart. He's, no just, uh, he's not just another religious leader. Oh, no. He's the Savior. He's the King. We look to him today for forgiveness, for uh, adoption, for hope for the future, for solid, true ground in the midst of the storm, and for the hope of beauty and joy, both today and forever. We thank you that we have a risen king, and we pray that by the power of his spirit, his life would be real in our minds and our hearts today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.